just spent the last half an hour at least trying to get to the bottom of these sound issues. Uh, I think I narrowed it down a little bit. I t- tweeted a couple of sample videos before, videos, audios. So it, it shouldn't be too bad at the moment because I've got the noise suppression filter back on OBS. But what I found is if I use, what do I call it now? It was Audacity, Audionic, ah, whatever it was. Uh, if I use that and I record just audio locally, to me, the, the whirring goes. Sounds pretty much perfect. I can still hear if I like pump the volume right, right up, I can hear a little bit of the fan down here on the PC, but you've got to like really max it out. And then I go to OBS, and particularly if I remove the filter and I record locally, and then it's like that, that whirring sound in the background. A pause. So maybe you can hear it, but the OBS filter does actually cut the audio <laughs> once your sound falls below a certain level. Anyway, it was important to me because I came up here. For those listening later on, I'm holding a power board in my hand. I came up here already to start unplugging stuff and trying to make it work. So my original theory was I was going to unplug the UPS because it's a big kick-ass battery and it's got all sorts of things in it, which I imagine are <laughs> not, not real good uh, for interference and so on. Just thinking that that would be like one of the paths of least resistance. And then I thought, oh, I'll just do one more test first. So... Uh, look, I don't know if I've got this right or not. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying. It's just painful. <laughs> G'day, everyone who is joining. Uh, <laughs> AAG885 is looking forward to hearing my take on the Aussie breaches. Oh, my God. Where do you start with that? Peter, uh, he's doing Sydney to Perth. Well, no, Rob's doing Sydney to Perth. Peter has done Sydney to Perth. For those of you not from Australia, flying from Sydney to Perth is like flying from pretty much New York to LA. It's like one side of the country to the other, right across Europe, a, a, a long, 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 long trip. Uh, Eddie's here. G'day, Eddie. Uh, Tertian Braze. There's no audio issues so far. Everyone's saying sound good. And I, I think that filter helps a lot. So I, I still have this underlying question of, is there interference somewhere and the filter is just sort of sorting that out? Or... Uh, is OBS itself injecting some noise? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm a little bit over it. I was very tempted just to pull out my iPhone and that little Rode podcaster mic or whatever it is. Yeah, the cool one. Regardless, we're here now. <laughs> Let's do the sponsor bit before I jump into it because I've got a heap of stuff today. Got the blinds open today as well. A little, little bit of natural lighting. We're in summer mode. Going to 31 Celsius today. We hit about 33 here a couple of days ago, which was just beautiful. The pool is almost also 33 at the moment. Sponsor is Verona's. Reduce your SAS blast radius with data-centric security for AWS, G-Drive, Box, Salesforce, Slack, and more. Uh, Verona's, as I've said many, many times before, has been a very long-term sponsor, uh, which has just been absolutely fantastic and also a company I've spent a bunch of time with uh, in person in, where have we been together? San Francisco, London, Tel Aviv. I spent time with, uh, with Verona's over there. They do really good stuff. They have an amazing ability to find things in your enterprise that either you didn't know were there or maybe shouldn't be findable, findable, discoverable. You know what I mean. They do that really well. So thank you to Veronis for being there on the sponsor bar again. Uh, One of my most prominent sponsors for 2022, which is almost over now. Wow. A couple of months left. Not just a couple of months left, but I have got, in fact, here's an announcement. I've got uh, four weeks from yesterday 
So 27 days from now, I will be heading back to Europe, uh, spending a bunch of time in Europe, doing some events. We announced one yesterday, which is an NDC meetup in Oslo. Let me check the actual details. So it's a free meetup as well. So if you're in Oslo and you're there on the 29th of November, well, a month and one day from now, I will be doing a meetup for the NDC folks. It is an after work thing. It is 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, at Rebel. So if you're anywhere near Rebel or can get there, we're doing it together with the uh, NNUG, the Norwegian.net user group from memory. I've done some events with them in Oslo in the past. So we'll be there. We'll be there. Uh, I've put a title and abstract. I use it. Here's a little cheaty che uh, trick, cheat thing I do. <laughs> I use the same title and abstract for a lot of my talks because it's broad enough that I can figure out what I want to talk about in the preceding days. Uh, so I won't even bother Thailand after. We'll just talk about a bunch of interesting stuff. See how many other Aussie businesses are hacked between now and then. Okay. Now, speaking of which, that is on my, my list, but I did have quite a comprehensive list for today. Where are we? Yesterday, I shared some, uh, some photos. Now, you won't hear this yet because it's only 8.30 in the morning. But we have a racetrack about 700 metres, I reckon, <laughs> that way. So they turn our city into a racetrack once a year, except for the last two years because we're distracted by other things. But they turn Surface Paradise uh, into a racetrack for the GC500, the V8 supercars, which is an Aussie touring car uh, class. Used to be Indy cars that ran here. I think we've been on V8 supercars the last 10 years or something. But it's kind of cool because it's a street circuit. It The traffic's a bit shit, okay? We have to deal with that. But it means that tomorrow we can walk down the end of our street uh, and go and watch race cars, which is fantastic. I love race cars. And as of probably in about an hour from now, and they actually start the events, like you walk out the back and all you're hearing is combination of race cars, excellent, helicopters, meh, and jets, which is fantastic because Air Force does flybys and stuff. So it's it's a fun place to be then. So I'll share some more shots of that. I did a little drone shot yesterday morning, posted some uh, photos out on Twitter and a little walk around the track. Uh, it is an amazing, I'd love to have a drive on this track. A lot of Armco, <laughs> it's a street circuit, a lot of stuff to crash into. But you're sort of walking along and it's like racetrack there and then just perfect beaches and water on the other side. It's lovely stuff. Okay. Now, Shane says, now I just need to uh, break me in the habit of, of slurping his drinks. I am conscious I do that sometimes. I am holding an empty coffee cup here because I filled it full of coffee before I came up and tried to fix my audio. Um, so that uh, Shane's happy because <laughs> that's not happening today. Stefan's here. Good day, Stefan. Uh, Stefan of Pwn Passwords fame from Iceland. And as I mentioned to Stefan the other day when we were chatting, when I asked about where I should go in the world that I haven't been already, the single most popular response by some distance was Iceland, which is where Stefan is. So maybe a Reykjavik trip somewhere on the horizon there. Dave says he's been watching previous highlights from previous events in every GC500. Looks awesome. Stadium trucks mad. If you haven't seen what stadium trucks are before, after this video, go to YouTube, Google stadium trucks. It's insane. It's like what we would have done with, with trucks as little kids, just like jumping them off ramps, flipping them over, crashing them into each other, except it's like real trucks. <laughs> they do it on the street, on the circuit. It's insanely good fun to watch. 
I hope they actually do have that tomorrow. I've got to look at the agenda. They have had it previous years. Back to business. <laughs> Big ass fans. Oh, my God. Now, I, I will lead by saying a couple of things with the big ass fans. Uh, number one, if you start Googling for the first part of that name or you start searching the App Store for the first part of that name, you may get distracted. <laughs> it, it, it is one of those names. The other thing I'll say is before I go into all of the problems with it, folks from Big Ass Fans have been in touch with me and they have been very receptive, uh, very acknowledging of some issues and very helpful in suggesting some fixes. So leading with the fact that they have, uh, I reckon, responded pretty well. Now, I could have bought normal fans. And for, for context, uh, as I just mentioned, it gets hot here. What are we at now? 26 degrees at 8.30 in the morning. We're still more than a month off summer. It gets proper hot. We have air conditioning. I've been in this house for just over seven years. We run the air conditioning very consistently during summer, particularly working from home. Uh, air conditioning cools the place down pretty good as you'd expect it is very expensive to run and there's just something about that blast of cold air which is not soothing now we have never had ceiling fans in this house so eventually we decided to buy ceiling fans and that presented an opportunity because you could get connected fans and I, I didn't lead with the idea of wanting connected fans I led with the idea of wanting fans that were aesthetically pleasing because we have all seen ceiling fans before and they can be very, very basic things. I remember the ones in my parents' place. They're just, they're not pretty. And the fans that actually look really, really sleek are from a company called Big Ass Fans. Now, my understanding of the, of the organisation, and I think this is where part of the problems come from, is that they appear to have done fairly industrial-sized fans in the past and then acquired a brand called Haiku, which does the really cool-looking ones inside your house. Now, I've tweeted photos of this. They're very smooth looking fans, very slick. Uh, we've got a couple of white ones in the kids' bedrooms, got a black one in our bedroom because a lot of dark accents. Looks slick, looks really, really nice. Now, when I was looking for this and I found aesthetically the fans I wanted, I noticed that they have internet, <laughs> okay? So they're IoT fans. And I was curious, obviously. Why would you want IoT? You know, turn it on, turn it off. Okay, well, I could do that with a Shelly. Uh, Increase the speed, decrease the speed. I think there's a Shelly that actually does that. I think it's just a change in voltage. But what else? So here's what else. They have a, an occupancy sensor in them, and they also have a thermometer in them. So they can sense both the temperature and whether or not there's someone in the room. Now, what that means is as a turnkey solution for the consumer, Big Ass Fans can ship an app where people can say, for example, this is the target temperature I want in the room. And the fan will try and achieve that temperature by changing its speed. You can also do things like say the fan doesn't need to run if there's not someone there, so we're being energy efficient. And from the end user consumer perspective, it's all bundled up into that one thing. This is meant to be for the normal mums and dads and other normies out there. Now, of course, I have lots of a care attempt sensors, uh, motion sensors. I could figure all of this stuff out by cobbling together different devices and things, but isn't it nice if it's all built into one unit? And particularly something like a proximity sensor, that the fans are over the beds because this is where it makes sense to put them. Uh, you're in the bed. Uh, you do move <laughs> when you're asleep. So it, it can get a pretty good idea of whether there's someone in the room all built into the one unit. I checked first. There was a home assistant integration. 
which is good news because it can surface all of that into there. So everything was just like, fan looks good. Uh, I, I somehow got a 30% discount on them because I found a discount code somewhere. I want to buy more now. I can't find the same code again. Yes, I want to buy more even after all the dramas I'm about to tell you about. Uh, so yeah, it looks good. Uh, pricing was good. Uh, it has all this stuff built into it. It does have a physical remote control as well. So you can manage everything physically. It does not have a wall unit. It does not ship with a toggly dial. And in fact, I thought we'd be able to install them with no need for any switch of any kind until my Sparky electrician explained that under Australian law, you must have an isolator switch in the room. So yes, you could isolate it at the switchboard down the garage, but you must have a physical button you can push to turn off the power. So it does have a button which will just kill power. And of course, if you kill power, then you also kill all the sensors in it, which is why my buttons don't have a Shelly behind them as well, so I can turn them back on digitally. Which does kind of feel like it defies the point of having a physical button to isolate when you can just do... Anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Now, I'm not going to explain everything that went wrong... <laughs> with these fans, because there is a very long thread about it. But I'll, I'll sort of summarize it in, in several different ways. Now, one of the ways is, is that the, the UX involves the fan broadcasting an AP, your mobile device connects to that AP, so this is the direct connection, it's not Bluetooth or anything like that. Uh, it's literally running a wireless access hotspot in the fan, you're connecting to it, the mobile app sees you're connected and then it configures some stuff. Now, their stuff being, for example, setting the network name and the Wi-Fi password that you want it to normally connect to. That alone, and this is not just a big-ass fans problem, all sorts of devices do this. The Shelly devices do that. All sorts of devices do it. It feels super clunky. Now, see comments coming up here. So now someone's going to mention Matter. Matter, which is meant to be the unifying single standard for IoT, is starting to roll out and get traction. I hope it solves some of this. It's very, very early. The model of an IoT device acting like a wireless router is so much sticky tape. You know, like it's such a hacky workaround to something that should be easier to solve. So that was a little bit of a mess. And of course, the, the problem is now, whether it's the Big Us fans or the Shelleys or any other device that does this, you connect to the device's broadcast access point, you reconfigure the device to connect to your network. And then the device drops off. You lose a connection because it's no longer broadcasting that SSID. It's now trying to connect to your network. So what was happening is at that point, I just couldn't see the fan anymore from the mobile app. And the mobile app would then no longer see the SSID from the fan. It would default back to the SSID of my own network here inside, but couldn't see the fan. The theory, of course, is that the fan's now on your network. Your phone's fallen back to your network and they talk to each other and everybody's happy. Just wasn't working that way. Now, this is where your average, normal, everyday consumer is completely screwed. Their only option would be to read the instructions and figure out how to do a factory reset on the fan, which is easy. Hold down a button, wait for a beep, press another button, job done. But then it's like, just repeat the whole pain again. It's the same problem over and over again. Now, because everything goes onto my Ubiquiti network and I've got a cool dashboard and I can see all the IPs and all the devices, I could see that the fans were actually on the network. So they had successfully connected. They'd been granted an IP address. I could ping them. Uh, they were there, but my device just couldn't see it. Now, in amongst this long, 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 long thread, what ultimately seems to have happened is that my mobile device is just not able to see the fans directly on the network. 
the fans can be cloud <laughs> controlled, air quoting for the folks listening later. The phones can be cloud controlled because they connect back to the big ass service and then you can be external to your network, connect to big ass because maybe you're down at the shops and you go, I want to turn the fan on before I get home. So they can talk that way. But even at, I'm sure as of now, if I pop it open again, the big ass fans app will show, for anyone actually able to see the screen from here, get the glare off, will show this little cloud icon next to each one of the fans, which means I'm not directly connected, I'm going via cloud, and I've confirmed this with them as well. So one of the things we're having a discussion about now is what is it about my network which does not allow my phone to see the fans? Keeping in mind, I've got plenty of other devices in here that can see each other. It's not network isolation or anything, or client isolation. It's nothing like that. Um, it's nothing to do with uh, blocking, uh, what was it, MDNS or any of those sorts of things. All that works fine. I don't know what the problem is. It was made worse by the fact that, remember I said there was a Haiku brand and then Big Ass Fans bought it? <laughs> the fans ship with a version of the firmware that won't work with the Big Ass Fans app. You have to get the Haiku app first. When you get the Haiku app, you can upgrade the firmware on the fans. The fans can then be controlled by the Big Ass Fans app. There's also two Home Assistant integrations. There's a Haiku one and a Big Ass Fans one. The Haiku one works until you upgrade the firmware, then the Big Ass... <laughs> oh my God. How do normal people deal with this? So anyway, we just went round and round and round and round like that, and it was... It was painful, and I have this massive thread going. It got picked up by the Internet of Shit account uh, and shared. They've got, I think, going on half a million followers or something. Everyone had much lols at my uh, pain, which is reasonable. I share this for a reason. Now, all of that said, where are we at now? Uh, painful getting this process. They've acknowledged that this is a painful process and that things can be done better. So, for example... I don't know how old that firmware is or how long it's been superseded for, but shipping the fans with the current gen firmware so you don't have to use an old app to upgrade the firmware to then use a new app. Seems like a simple thing. Uh, when I now look at the Big Ass Fans integration, it's good on Home Assistant. It's really good. Like I'm, I'm actually really, really happy with it. So my mouse has just gone completely flaky. Seems to do this sometimes. It doesn't. Screw it. iPad. Let me open the iPad and talk about the Big Ass Fans integration. So uh, it's got a lot of stuff that it reports on, which is quite nice. You know, things like the presence in the room. If I go into my settings and Home Assistant, into integrations, Big Ass Fans, we've got three of them. I'll go pull the one from the master bedroom. So we've got, you know, your basic fan control. So fan on, fan off, fan speed. It's got things like auto comfort. So what is the temperature now? What is your target temperature? Occupancy sensor. The temperature sensor, I've had a little graph running of that right next to the Ikea Zigbee-based one that's in my same room just to see how much they align. And they are very, very close, but for the fact the fan is usually reading higher when it's hot because it's on the ceiling, obviously. So uh, I'm actually thinking, and I can't do this completely, but I'm, I'm thinking of whether I could actually get rid of the um, 
are the temperature sensors, the Ikea ones. Now, the, the reason I can't do that completely is because they also do humidity, and I've got some automations that depend on being able to read the humidity, namely automations that try and figure out if the shower is running in the bathroom or if it's just a very humid day because we, we often get up over 100%, well, not over 100%, over 90% humidity here. So being able to see what is the humidity in a normal room versus the humidity of the bathroom, but I might be able to see the external humidity. Yeah, I might be able to get rid of some sensors, which would be nice. So TLDR, I like the fans. I like the state that we're in now. It doesn't actually matter too much that I'm controlling them by cloud. I'd like to know why they can't communicate with each other. I'm going to buy more. I'm actually going to get one up here because I need more noise in this office to cause problems. Uh, actually, this is one of the nice things about the fans. They are completely silent unless you're really, really cranking them. So very, very good product physically. Digitally, too much for pain in the ass to get to where I am now, but now they're good. Let me look at the comments. Um, let's have a look here. <laughs> so Brian says big ass with uh, dollar signs instead of S's, uh, ceiling fans. I don't, know, I don't know how much I expected to pay for fans, but with the 30% off as well. And also we're, we're talking about something that you're going to – I mean, I cast my mind back to my parents' situation. They've had the same fans in that house since I lived there – 25 years ago. So they last, but we're also conscious that we're talking about something that's got internet in it. And whilst a physical fan might last a good 25 years, I'm not sure how much the microprocessors and the sensors and the software will. We'll see. If it's a decade, though, still not too bad. Uh, Shane says, set up a pile of automation home assistant for ceiling and floor fan management around the house. Came in handy during a hot summer and helped me shave a ton off the AC usage. Uh yeah, and, and this is sort of part of the point, right? Being able to not just create comfort, but be a bit more energy efficient. I noticed when I was just looking at the fan here on my iPad, the fan in the master is off. I didn't manually turn it off, but yesterday I did create an automation to say if there is nobody in the master and the sun has come up, turn the fan off, which is good. Uh, you know, this is the sort of thing we want. Automatic stuff happening in the background, creating comfort, power efficiency, etc. Stefan says he loves how home assistant can connect enhanced different IoT stuff. For example, use a carer sensor to determine the room temperature of my IoT radiator valves instead of the valve temp sensor. Okay, that's good. Makes them much more accurate. David's wondering if there's an ESP chip in the fans. Don't know. <laughs> Brian is doing a, uh, sorry, Troy, I'm afraid I can't do that. It's, where's that from? Sorry, Dave. Someone will know. There'll be an answer in a few seconds. <laughs> Probably from Brian. Stefan is asking, do your care attempt sensors regularly drop off the Zigbee network? I haven't found out what causes this for me, but every once in a while I have to reconnect them. Battery is fine, so it isn't that. Occasionally. So one of the things that I have noticed, uh, I'll give you a good example because I, I see it now. The wine fridge. <laughs> Why is that so wine? Why do I have wine fridge top, wine fridge bottom, and wine fridge? Must get to that. Or is that beer fridge? Anyway, one of the sensors is reading consistently just above zero, but then continues to drop down to minus 100. And I noticed that there was a change, I assume with decons uh, some months ago, where when the battery's getting low the temp will often be reported as minus 100. 
So I've got a multimeter I go around and when I'm having problems, check the battery. I find as soon as the battery falls, there's one of those CR, what is it, 2032. As soon as the battery falls beneath three volts, it's it's cactus. They just don't want to play nice. Uh, <laughs> I had the sensor in Ari's room drop off the other day, the temp sensor. And I went, okay, well, I'll just go and replace the battery. I can't find where I put it. Not the battery. I can't find where I put the entire sensor. Because there was a period there I had them on walls and a bit obnoxious. I went, I can actually put them, for example, the one in my office is just under the desk. I've literally lost the entire sensor in Ari's room. So I don't know how to find it. I do find that I do have to go through and reconnect them occasionally, though. And it's literally like going into decons in Home Assistant, add new device, press the little button on the device, it pops up, add, and then it picks it back up as the original device. But um, looking at all my sensors now, other than the one in Ari's room, they're uh, they're actually all just fine, which is a nice change. Uh, Paul, currently configuring four Raspberry Pis for multi-room audio. <laughs> I feel your pain. We do it for the love, though, don't we? Brian says, sounds like a lot of extra steps for a fan. And, and it is. And it's. I, I think most people listen to this of, of a similar sort of mindset where this isn't just for function. There is a pleasure out of doing this. I've just been 3D printing Halloween ghosts for the for the kids. And Charles looked at it and said, why are you printing all these ghosts? It's like, I don't know. It's, it's fun. It entertains me. It's a bit geeky. It takes my mind off other things sometimes when I need a mental break. New shame to get it. Hell 9000 from 2001 Space Odyssey. Yep. Very good. Uh, Dave says, I bet most people would say the Haiku fans are prettier than the Skyfan DCS, but the price difference probably makes up for it. Haven't seen the other one. One of the things about um, Big Us fans, I've got a, a big warehouse up near the airport here, about an hour north. So th- there's a, a big upside to having local support. I'll give you a really good example. I ordered these three fans book the Sparky weeks in advance. He comes out. He's unboxing them. I'm in my office. He comes in. He's like, you know, he ordered the wrong ones. <laughs> he got the wrong mounts. So his offsider was actually able to, like, literally drive up, change them over, come back, fit them. Uh, that sort of support and being able to go into the showroom and figure out what we want and give him a call. I'm going to give him a call today, actually, and so I can get that 30% discount again. It's a lot to be said for that. Dave says the David says the Sky fans have smart as a module, but someone has an aftermarket module that comes flash with ESP Home. Um, and Luke says he lives in Central Queensland. Don't think his fans are ever turned off. Yep, yep, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> Luke, I agree with you there. Okay, moving on. Aussie Pornageddon. That sounds much worse when I say it out loud. Uh, we've had some more breaches. We've been talking about this a lot in Australia. My schedule has been decimated in one way or another pretty much since I went away on my honeymoon, which is now a month ago, when it was the Optus data breach, and I'm just getting smashed by reporters and questions. And then that was still big news story as we came home, and then the Medibank data breach. We had film crews and stuff in the house this week, multiple ones, doing more and more media because... It's just such big news in Australia at the moment. Medibank, oh boy, this this just goes from bad to worse. Let me give you an example. I mean, it's worse. Like last week I spoke about it, it was bad. Now it's worse. Um, 
Now, for those of you not familiar with Medibank, maybe you're from a different part of the world, they are Australia's largest healthcare insurer, uh, private health insurer. They have about 4 million customers. Now, keeping in mind that we've got about 25 million people in Australia, that is a lot. The update that they pushed out two days ago says, uh, and I'll just say up front, full credit for transparency because this is not a pretty message, but they've given it. Since yesterday's announcement, our investigation has now established that the criminal had access to, and before I say that, initially it was like, we think they've got some of the data of our like cheaper brand health insurance. We're not sure how much. I don't feel that they ever tried to play this down. It, it does feel like they just shared what they knew, but it seemed bad, but it could be worse. Now it's worse. Our investigation has now established the criminal had access to all AHM, this is the sort of cheaper brand, customers' personal data and significant amounts of health claims data, all international student customers' personal data and significant amounts of health claims data, and then this is the worst bit because this is the big one, all Medibank customers' personal data and significant amounts of health claims data. So that sort of feels like all customers and significant amounts of health claims data. Now think about what goes into a health claim. I don't think I've ever made a health claim, a private one, but I can imagine the sorts of things that would cause me to do that. And it's often going to be, it could be injury, uh, it could be disease, it could be things that are enormously personal to me. And, And this is why health data is sensitive personal information. We hold that above and beyond pretty much every other class of data. It it is up there with the most sensitive things that you can imagine. And if you picture in your mind for a moment the sorts of conditions that people might have that would cause them to make a claim, and then for that data to now be in the hands of another party who is using it to try and ransom the company, like that's that's just as, it's as bad as it can be. Actually, it's not as bad as it can be because it hasn't been done publicly. Think Because immediately what came to my mind is Vastamo, so the, the Finnish psychotherapy service, where two years ago someone got all their clinician's notes, uh, tried to ransom then didn't work, so they started ransoming the individuals and then dumped it all publicly. That's, I think that's about the only way it can be made worse at the moment, if it gets dumped. Uh, we don't know. It's, it's evolving day by day. But it is, it is a, a real mess. Now, there is a piece of commentary here. I'm just going to see if I can quote this somewhere here. Uh, no, I don't have it in my thread. I've got a long thread going. I just keep adding to it. It's a piece of commentary which said that the root cause was due to a compromised account, so something to the effect of a username and password uh, being exploited. I've not seen anything about uh, was that obtained via a phishing attack? Was it weak credentials? Was it reused credentials? Was it skimmed in some other way? I haven't seen anything about that. I also haven't seen what the credentials actually granted access to. Uh, was it like admin.medibank.com.au and then there's a login and you get all the customer data? I, I sincerely hope it wasn't that. Or was it multiple layers deep after someone has infiltrated a network and pivoted and ended up you know, at the pot of gold. I, I don't know. Uh, the headline doesn't look good, but we just don't know enough underneath that to understand yet. And what is obviously fascinating about this is that clearly they 
are learning as they go. So it's not evident to them, certainly not at the outset, the full extent of the issue, and I, I suspect even the, the full extent of how the compromise happened in the first place. But it is, it is a real serious mess. And again, I think the only way this can get worse is if the data is dumped publicly. We'll see. We'll see. On Aussie Pernageddon, the other one, <laughs> yesterday, I've been under the pump. I'll talk about some of the new stuff and the reasons why in a moment. But <clears throat> I've been under the pump. So Charlotte and I go down to the wakeboard park. Uh, I'd have a little wakeboard, chill out. It's 33 degrees or something there. It was beautiful. I'm out there having a wake. I literally put my phone, my watch and everything on, do not disturb, so I cannot be buzzed, I cannot be bothered. Uh, and I've missed some calls from journalists. And I pick it up. And I'm having a chat to them. And they're like, yeah, you've seen the latest Aussie breach? I'm like, oh, Medibank. They're like, no, 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 like the one from today. It was announced today. So, oh, jeez. Because there's another one. All right, so here it is. Jeremy Kirk, as always, has got an excellent thread on this. Australian Clinical Labs says its med lab pathology business had a breach affecting 223,000 people, 17,539 health records associated with pathology tests. So imagine you go and get a blood test. Uh, it could be your cholesterol is a bit high. It could be you're fine. It could be you have AIDS. It's like there's all of these HIV, something serious. The, the whole point is that pathology tests are enormously personal data. 28,286 credit card numbers kind of feels like that's not the worst part of the story here. And names and 128,608 Medicare numbers. There are government-issued Medicare uh, or, or health system identifiers. Somewhere down here as well, it talks about CVVs for the cards being exposed. We shouldn't laugh about that shouldn't uh but it, it just kind of feels like credit cards are the least of your worries when there's pathology results out there jeremy goes on acl which is australian clinical labs says it detected an incident in feb but thought no data had been compromised then cybergov.au which is our aussie cyber arm our acsc uh one of the first adopters have ever been pwned Hold it, in March, it may have been ransomware. ACL says it still did not believe data was stolen. Anyway, uh, it goes on. It says uh, the ACSC tells ACL that its data is on the dark web. So why disclose this just today? ACL says, given the high complexity and unstructured nature of the data set being investigated, it has taken the forensic analysis and experts until now to determine the individuals and the nature of their information involved. Yeah, that was a... Feb, March, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October. So eight, eight months. Why are we eight months in? The source tells me the data was unstructured, but not to the point of taking months to analyse. Jeremy then says, I'm not going to name the ransomware group behind this one, but there's a screenshot of the data dump, 86 gigabyte patient data, financial data. So and we'll all figure out who this is soon enough because we always do. But some ransomware crew... Uh, has the datas, it is on, uh, as ransomware crews tend to do these days, it is on a dark web website somewhere listed here as their data and, and, and effectively like Bitcoin please or we're going to dump it all publicly. ACL's notice says, to date there is no evidence of misuse of any of the information, I mean like except for the whole 
fact that they have the data and there's a ransom demand or they're going to dump it. I mean, other than that, it's fine. An Aussie health industry IT insider tells me that healthcare companies here have monolithic technical debt. They have databases with billions of rows of sensitive patient information running in outdated systems and programming languages few understand today. <laughs> I pinged Jeremy and I said, hey, you know, if, if, if you want to talk to someone who's spent like 14 years working with healthcare data and seen the way these systems run internally, give me a call. I can believe this. I can very, very much believe this. That's data breaches in Australia today. Query out the comments. Um, ben Sweetnam is here. Very good. <laughs> Shane says, would not want to be on the SecOps team for them right now. Now, I don't know if that was related to Optus, Medibank, or ACL, but I don't think you'd really want to be on any of them, would you? Robert says, thank good for cyber liability insurance. Now, one of the things that's in the news as it relates to Medibank at the moment is apparently, then this is the headline, they did not have cyber insurance because it was too expensive. I don't think it's, it's fair to necessarily judge them negatively by that headline alone because insurance is there as a bet. You know, like we all, probably all, have insurance on our house, our cars, uh, maybe some jewellery. And, and the bet is that it is worthwhile paying a small portion, the premium, over a period of time such that if you need to claim it later on, you're going to cover your loss. Now, you may never lose the thing and your premiums end up being wasted, but it's a bet. And it could have been the same with Medibank. There could have been a very valid case where they went, it's just not worth insuring this stuff. The premium is so high, they might have thought the likelihood of compromise was too low. Might have a different view of that now. But I don't think that alone is worth throwing them under the bus for. I think we need to see more information about that. Peter says, not sure there's enough cyber insurance to cover all the Medibank liability here. Rob says, currently on leave and worried about turning the work phone back on with all these breaches. I'm not in healthcare. I think that AU is going to be in the spotlight for the foreseeable future. I keep getting asked by reporters, is Australia under cyber attack? <laughs> like, is this a concerted attack against Australia? And no, it's not. It, it, it's not in any way. There's a lot of coincidental stuff that's happened. I wonder in the case of things like ACL, if maybe the fact that it is in the spotlight so much is driving more reporting. So maybe they just wouldn't have reported this at all. I mean, mind you, once there's a dark web website talking about the data, it's a little bit hard not to talk about it. But I do wonder how many of the other smaller ones, the Vinamofos and the MyDeal, and again, like some of this has been on forums, etc. but how many of them might not have been on the news were it not for it being in the spotlight? AAG885 says, looking at what Lapsus did, could be social engineering attack too. Never says to amaze me how willing the new generation is to use these styles of attacks. I tweeted something. I will laugh at this one because this guy's an idiot. We did something just before this video. After the Optus data breach, uh, and that the, the industry consensus is that it's a kid somewhere or someone extraordinarily unsophisticated, either a kid or a very young adult, uh, after the breach and after 10,200 records were dumped publicly, it got abused. There was a, a ransom, for example, going around demanding money, and the ransom from memory had a bank account number in the ransom SMS. And the headline today, I'm just going to open up the story here. 
Sydney, well, actually, this was a little bit misleading, and I think Stefan got the wrong impression as I did the first time I read it because the the Twitter card here says accused Optus blackmailer ready to plead guilty as charges reviewed, and I'm like, oh shit, they've caught the guy. I suspect they've caught the actual guy anyway, but no, this is not the guy. This is someone who took the guy's breach, guys, girls, whoever it was, but this guy, because we know who it is, took the data and ransomed people. And the headline here says. Uh, Charges against Sydney teenager accused of using information from last month's Optus data breach to blackmail scheme will be reviewed after his lawyer told a court he would plead guilty. So Dennis Sue has been charged with two offences earlier this month, claiming he sent text messages to 93 Optus customers demanding they transfer $2,000 to a bank account. The 19-year-old allegedly threatened to use their information for financial crimes if they didn't comply, according to police, but nobody paid the money. The charges were laid after a bank account belonging to a juvenile, which Mr. Sue allegedly used, was identified. The, the, the way this reads is like maybe he's, he's got like his, his little sister and he's got her bank account and he's used that number in the ransom emails and somehow the police have figured out what happened. I wish all cybercrime was just easier to solve. It'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? Ah, maybe I'll be out of a job. <laughs> maybe it's not all bad. I don't know. All right. Two little data breaches. Then I'll talk about the new stuff with Have I Been Pwned. EPAL and Doomworld. Now, uh, these were both names that were new to me, but let's just talk about them very quickly. They both went into Have I Been Pwned this week. Uh, somehow the EPAL one actually got news as it related to Have I Been Pwned loading it in. But EPAL, which is apparently for friends friends, people to find friends on Discord. They disclosed a breach earlier this month that affected over 100,000 unique email addresses. Data also included usernames and the order history of approximately 1 million transactions because they could transfer some sort of e-gold or something to each other. 52% of all of those already have been pwned. The Doom World Forum had 34,000 records. It's a little one, but 65% of them already have been pwned. Bcrypt password hashes, so good on them for that. Uh, still email and IP addresses and usernames in there as well. So, uh, yeah, their disclosure notice is actually a bit, a bit funny. <laughs> I linked through to it. As you may have heard by now, Doomworld probably got pwned by ScriptKitty. I don't know what databases are accessed, but they claim email addresses and password hashes at the least. I'll be looking into this further, of course. There's a bit of advice in here. We don't store your password directly, but the output of a salted and hashed one-way algorithm. That's good. Good explanation. You can change your password if you wish, but no one should be able to decrypt it anyway. Okay, that bit's not so good. <laughs> no, nobody can decrypt it at all because it's not encrypted in the first place. People could crack it, even though it's bcrypt and it's very, very slow, because if we get predictable passwords and we put predictable dictionary lists into Hashcat, we can crack some of those. Uh, you sh unless you've got a generated password from your favorite password manager, uh, I would be changing that. Anyway, there's those ones. Uh, last one. Let me talk about the Have I Been Pwned bits. Now, this is where a huge amount of my time has been going. I have been doing many things secretly in the background with have I been pwned. Not secretly and I don't want to disclose it, but just things that I've wanted to push out gently and silently, including stuff that's going out even today, to let it gradually seep out and make sure it works okay before I talk about it. It's still just me writing code here and I, I do, do make mistakes sometimes. Um, 
In this blog post, I pull my blog post up here, I explained that have I been pwned, it, it, I actually put an API on it to query email addresses. I reckon it was only about a month after I launched the service. And I basically just took the async request that went from the client to the API and I just went, ah, oh, I'll just document it. And now it's a proper API, it's published. And in my naivety, you're going to hear a lot about my naivety, my naivety here. In my naivety, in very early 2014, I thought this would be good because now people can do good things with the data. They'll be able to build apps to integrate and they'll be able to help alert people that they've been in data breaches and they'll be able to flag accounts that might be at higher risk and provide additional protection to them and so on and so forth. And a lot of that happened, which was great. Less great was that it did get abused as well. And I reckon off the top of my head, it must be about 2016. I went, look, this this abuse is is not good. And what I mean by abuse is I would see sudden massive spikes of activity. And when I look at the requests flowing through the Have I Been Pwned, I was going to say servers, uh, Have I Been Pwned Cloud, I could see obviously just mass enumeration of email addresses. Now, that did not feel good at all. So I fixed it. I'm going to air quote. I fixed it by putting a rate limit on there. And I said, you can only make one request every 1,500 milliseconds. Uh, if you make more than that, you'll get an HTTP 429 too many request response. And I implemented all of that in-app. So the app which was there to serve the API request was also the code that was doing the rate limiting. Now, in my naivety, second naivety, I thought that when someone sees I've hit the rate limit, they'll slow down because you get a retry after it. says, this is how many seconds to wait until you can try another request. Instead, I just got smashed. Like I literally just got DDoS off the planet when people were hitting the rate limit. So I put it behind Cloudflare and I implemented the rate limit at the Cloudflare level. So now you've got to go through Cloudflare and they had a rate limit, a per IP address rate limit. So you cannot make more than one request every 1500 milliseconds or Cloudflare will, by a simple little rule, give you a 429. Some people have a lot of IP addresses. <laughs> Some people get many, many IP addresses across many different ACNs. So it's not just the same network they're using, the same provider. Some people have botnets. Those who wanted to get around it could get around it. And they were the sort of people who were not going to be using the service in the way that did good for people. So in 2019, I decided to put a key on Have I Been Pwned for the API. So you can only query the API with a key. But the, the problem I wanted to avoid is what's to stop you from just going and hack a dude who before was just distributing all these requests out via botnets or whatever else it may be. What's to stop them from just going and getting a thousand keys? I will make them present a credit card because if you've got to present a credit card, my thesis at the time was you are less likely to do bad things. Now this was sound logic and I priced it at the cost of providing the service. And I did the mathematics and I put it all in the original blog post, $3.50 US for a month. And part of the thinking was that that's basically like a cup of coffee. You know, you go to a Starbucks or something like that. It's a cup of coffee. Uh, if you're not willing to spend a cup of coffee in order to use this service, you probably don't really want to use it that much. Anyway, it won't matter. And uh, I decided that the best way to do this was to use a combination of Azure API management 
So this is an API gateway that sits in front of your underlying API. So I had everything in Azure Functions, the gateway just wrapped around it. And then I would use Stripe for payment fulfillment. Now let's explain the blog post. This was mid-2019. It was two really, really big things happening in my life at the time. One was the failed M&A merger and acquisition for Have I Been Pwned, going through a process of finding a new home. That failed. I honestly think that's one of the best things that ever happened to me. I'll talk more about that in the future. And then the other thing was going through a divorce, which I hadn't spoken about at the time. also think that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. So these two things are happening at the time that I built all of this code. Uh, and I was in Oslo, sitting there on a kitchen bench in Airbnb with my laptop writing code. Not the best environment to be focused uh, and productive. But I got it written, got it out there. It's worked extraordinarily well. I see no signs of abuse using that API anymore. Very occasionally, there'll be like a stolen credit card that Stripe picks up pretty quickly, cancels it, kills the key. Fantastic job done. It's worked great. But there was a lot of plumbing involved and there was a lot of surfacing the paradigms of paying by card in the Have I Been Pwned UI. So what I mean by that, the Have I Been Pwned UI used to have a credit card field. Never sent cards to Have I Been Pwned because I don't want to do all the PCI stuff, but it would send them client side to Stripe, Stripe sends your token, then it processes. I had to have paradigms around changing your card, around being able to receive your receipts and so on. So there was a lot of plumbing on Have I Been Pwned. I got some things wrong. Uh, and I'll give you some examples of things I got wrong because I don't mind admitting it. I got uh, some things wrong when you changed card. People ended up with two subscriptions where they'd have one subscription with the old card and one subscription with the new card. And then someone would send me an email and go, I've just been billed $7 in a month and I'd have to go in and manually fix it. And it, it took a while to flash all that code out and fix that. Um that was the biggest problem. Oh, here's the other problem I had. Credit card, and this is one of the things I've learned because I was naive, credit cards can often be more complex than just entering the name and the number. Now, you've probably seen before, and I've certainly seen this as a consumer, where you go and you purchase something and then suddenly you get like a verified by Visa. Well, there are other parts of the world, India in particular, that do things like 3DS, so like 3D secure payments where not only is it entering the number, but there is another verification process. And the code that I wrote originally didn't cater for that. So Stripe has, since I built this originally, launched two things, one of them only very recently, which have helped me solve this. Uh, both of these move pretty much everything to Stripe. Now, what I mean by moving it to Stripe is say now, instead of entering your credit card into a website which says, have I been pwned at the top and again, never sent me the card data sent to Stripe. Now you go to have a been pwned, verify your email address, you click on buy my $3.50 a month API key and you get taken to Stripe and you're in a Stripe hosted portal and you enter your card data in there and because it's all Stripe and they're the experts at doing payments, if you need verified by Visa or 3DS payment, everything is done there. So all of the times where I had someone contact me and particularly from India where they seem to be very dependent on 3DS, and I would look at Stripe and I'd go, well, Stripe's saying your bank rejected the transfer. I can't do anything about it. Those problems are gone. And again, one of the reasons I pushed that silently, I just wanted to see what happened in the background. It's solving those problems. It's making it more accessible to other people, which is fantastic. 
It also means now you can do things like change your credit card on a Stripe page because they've got, let me get the nomenclature right here, they have got the customer portal. So you can go in there, change your credit card. You can go in there, cancel your subscription. And all that's happening is when you do stuff in Stripe, they raise an event, they call a webhook on Have I Been Pwned, and it says, hey, your payment, for example, has been successful. There's a really neat model, and if you've not used Stripe before, and you ever consider payment, I massively recommend it because the APIs are fantastic, their customer service is fantastic, they've got a really big community around it too. I, I have nothing but positive things to say around the support. They do still have one big blind spot, and I've been speaking to people there about that, and it, it's simply this. If you are an existing Stripe customer, and you've gone, you'll say you've had a Have I Been Pwned subscription, and you've run it for a couple of months, and then you go, oh, I don't need it, and you come back a year later, and now you want the subscription again, there wasn't really a native way in Stripe to do this. Like I couldn't link them through to an existing customer portal, which not only shows you previous subscriptions, but then gives you the ability to take a new one. I didn't realize this until I'd already launched the other code. Remember, I said I'd do this silently for a reason because I didn't want people, lots of people going there at once. And what I ended up having to do is if you're an existing customer, you verify your email address, you go to like the Have I Been Pwned dashboard. Now there's just a button that says buy the API key and it's a Have I Been Pwned button. Uh, and that actually posts back to Have I Been Pwned and creates like a checkout session on Stripe and then redirects you to Stripe and then you buy that. And then the magic happens and everything's fine. So a bit of plumbing, but as I say in the blog post, I've cut out hundreds, hundreds of lines of code, which is fantastic. And I've just, I've just gone, who cares if you're entering your credit card into the Have I Been Pwned website or a Stripe-hosted portal that still has Have I Been Pwned branding on it, looks a little bit different, but people buying these API keys tend to live in our world and understand how these things work. Now, all that's perfect. I'm going to talk about the new stuff in a moment. Let me see the comments that have come through here. Um, mm -hmm. Christopher says it's really neat. Not sure what, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> Shane is doing a huge migration as we speak to Stripe. They've been great. Fantastic to hear. Right, new stuff. <laughs> so two of the most requested things ever for this API are annual billing and different rate limits. Now, that is something that I've wanted to do for a long time and is now finally almost here. Let me talk about why. In my naivety, when I set the $3.50 a month pricing, I thought this will be easy because it is so little money. In reality, lots of people have said it is hard to put in a refund or what do you even call it now, an expense $3.50 to my organization because the boss looks at it and goes, this is such a small amount of money. It's made worse by having to do this every single month. Is there a way we can just buy like a one-off key for a year? In fact, the example I gave in here, someone to buy a 10-year key, which I do feel is forecasting just a little bit too far ahead. So annual billing is exactly what it sounds like. Rather than just doing month by month by month by month, you will be able to say buy 12 months worth of key. The other bit is also self-explanatory, the rate limits. There is one rate limit at the moment. It's a one-size-fits-all. That dates all the way back to, I think, about that 2016 period where it was all free and open and YOLO, and that just seemed to be a reasonable number. The, the one-size-fits-all doesn't really work that well when you have, as the example I gave in here, in some cases, 
people with more than 100 keys. How do I know it's the same entity? Because it's like HOB plus one at domain.com, HOB plus two, HOB plus three. Literally, the most is 112 keys, and I think the second most was 110 keys. There is obviously a demand to make much higher levels of request. Equally, and this is foreshadowing what I'm still working out, the rate limit, which is one request every 1500 milliseconds, which is 40 requests uh, a minute, which is tens of thousands, I think, per day, I think it's about 50-something thousand requests a day, is massively in excess of what the vast majority of people use. So you end up with this, this thing where it's like there's a line in the sand, pretty much everyone is way down here, and then you've got a bunch of people that want to be way up here, and you're either being held back or getting more than what you need. So what I've got to do is I've got to figure out what is, and I honestly don't have the answer to this yet, but what is the right distribution of rate limit? Uh, yeah, at the moment, we've got this one that's 40 requests a minute. That's way too much for a bunch of people. It's way too little for a bunch of others. Should it be 400 a minute and a 4,000? I don't know. It's got to be some setting. <laughs> I've got to figure it out. I also don't know what to do with the pricing yet. If you have suggestions, please send them through. Originally, I was just like, I just pro-rata everything because that's simple. You know, if, if you want to do 10 times as much, you pay 10 times as much. If you want to pay for a year instead of a month, you pay 12 times more and you just do it annually. I don't know that that's the best thing. And it's, it's not that I want to play like these marketing games of let's try and upsell and incentivize people to go to the higher things or the longer period. It, it also kind of seems reasonable that if you want to pay for 12 months rather than one, you, you pay a little bit less. I don't know. I've got to work that out. Uh, I, I literally just went, let's just get the code that's there right now. And then I got the next two weeks, which is the commitment I've made, the next couple of weeks, to work out the other details. So that's where we are. Any questions? Whew. Not yet. <laughs> um, the Stripe stuff is super cool. And to Shane's point here, the, the support and everything's been fantastic. I know they have more stuff in the pipeline that will help me address some of the bits that I felt were gaps. But the API is so good, you can fill in a lot of those gaps. There are a lot of payment paradigms that Charlotte and I have had to try and get to grips with. So Charlotte's been managing a lot of the, the logistics of things like payments and invoices and things. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a really good example. When you go and you purchase a key for Have I Been Pwned, whether it was in the past or the future, and you put your credit card in, in the background, an invoice is being raised and then the invoice is being paid. And that could happen within a tiny, tiny slice of time. And then a month from now, another invoice is automatically raised and automatically paid and so on and so forth. But what happens if an invoice is raised and the payment fails? Credit card's expired, card's been cancelled, no funds. Well, the invoice still sits there. And then someone has an invoice sitting on their account and Stripe has this clever little retry thing because sometimes the card just gets rejected for other reasons or it was that moment when they were overdrawn and they're okay a few hours later. But sometimes it fails perpetually, card expired, for example, and you've still got this raised invoice. And in my brain, I'm going, well, if the payment isn't successful, then the key gets cancelled. So from a functionality perspective, that's fine. But then they've still got that invoice. And I've actually found some accounts uh, the invoice is still sitting there and then maybe like a year later they come and get another key but it's been applied to the previous invoice and things just get messy. So I've still got to work out some of that. There's a lot of payment paradigms that I'm still wrapping my head around. 
Peter says, do 10 times 350 for 12 months. Okay, so that would be like uh, buy 12 months but only pay for 10. And and, and this is sort of the, the discussion, right? So do we do something like that? Is it like a fixed discount? Uh, is, a, is it pay for 12 or pay for 10 rather, get 12, pay for 11, get 12? I don't know. We've got to work that out. Not entirely sure I know the answer just yet. Uh, whatever the answer will be, because it's the internet, some people will be unhappy. <laughs> that's okay. They can they can be unhappy. So look, that's that's it, folks. I'm at uh, bang on an hour now. Uh, I hope this audio has been a bit better than usual. I'm going to listen back to some of this and make sure that's it's a bit more solid. I think we're making progress here. Um, next week I will have something else new that is unrelated to kind of unrelated to payments, separate that were I am have been pushing out as we speak. And again, I'm just going to let that sort of tick along in the background and then I'll be able to talk about it in more detail next week. Last comments before we drop off. Christopher says, anything wrong with killing invoices if payment fails after X amount of retries? I think that's actually the answer. And I found the setting. And I'll tell you the setting. In fact, I, I was messaging this to Charlotte yesterday, so I have a screen cap of it here. So there is a feature in here. Here we go. That's not the one. Ah, here it is. So subscription status. This is the Stripe setting. This is what's so cool about using Stripe. If all retries for a payment fail, then it's a dropdown. And at the moment, it is cancel this subscription. Now that cancels it in Stripe, but the way it actually works in Have I Been Pwned is when you get a subscription, there's a record in Have I Been Pwned which says, you have a subscription, it expires on this date, which is a month from now. The only way that date can be extended is you have to have a successful payment. And then Stripe calls the webhook and then it adds a month to the date. So at the moment, as soon as you pass that one month period, your Have I Been Pwned subscription no longer works. Stripe might say that the subscription hasn't been cancelled because it's still going to try a few more times, but the Have I Been Pwned one's failed. The one that's interesting, and this, this speaks to uh, Christopher's point just here, is the setting which I think I should change is there's an invoice status field and it says if all retries for a payment fail at the moment, leave the invoice as is. So the invoice just sits there. There is another option on there which effectively says cancel the invoice. Now, I'm pretty sure that's what I need to do, but because we've got existing subscribers that are used to things working a certain way, I'm very cautious about changing things unless I fully understand it. But I do think that you're right on that, Christopher. Shane says there might be some settings in Stripe to determine what happens to lapsed invoices and their subscriptions. That's pretty much what I just spoke about. Shane can't remember off the top of his head. Ben loves my work. Thanks, Troy. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up there and go and enjoy my sunny, sunny weather down here in the sunshine with the Vare Supercast. Cheers, folks. <laughs>